Palm Sunday always comes the Sunday before Easter, which means that it changes every year because Easter changes. It's never the same thing. It always comes the Sunday before Easter. Palm Sunday, this event, it commemorates that we see in the Gospels, is recorded in all four of the New Testament Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, which is a big deal. Now, because remember, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four different books, four different accounts, historical accounts written by four individuals at four different times. So it's not like the four people sat in a room and said, all right, what are you going to write? All right, me too. You know, they didn't, they, they wrote them independently. So the fact that, and they're remembering things that happened, you know, 10, 15, sometimes 20 years prior from when these were written to when the events actually happened. So whenever you have all four of them talking about the same thing, it's a big deal because all of them remembered it saying this is important and this is one of those moments. Palm Sunday is the day that Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. Um, and so he had been, most of his ministry, his life had been up in northern parts of Israel, up in the Galilee region, but he knew what was coming. He knew that the, the crucifixion, he knew all that needed to happen. And so for weeks had been making his way from the north of Israel down up to Jerusalem. And uh, so on this day, he arrives. And interestingly enough, the Bible, on all the gospel accounts, they, they point out that Jesus rode not this, uh, he rode a donkey into the city, which was very symbolic because he's the Messiah, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he has a, his, his came into usher in his kingdom. And, but that was so contrary to what people believed because the Messiah was supposed to rid them of the Roman rule, and he was going to have a political might and power. And so they were expecting him to ride, the Messiah, whoever that was, was going to ride in a, a big, majestic white horse. And here comes Jesus on his donkey. Um, so yeah, it was a thing. But in Matthew 21, Matthew uh, recounts this moment this way. He says, A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And then when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. That's a pretty crazy moment. Um, for me, in my mind, as I'm visualizing it, any of you who have watched uh, like when an, an NFL football team or an NBA basketball team, they have the parade you know, their home city, and it's all this people along the sides and shouting and crazy and doing things. It's kind of one of those moments, um, except instead of this bus carrying a team, it's Jesus riding on a donkey. Now, um, a normal person, I would suspect, could get a pretty big head about all that praise and, ad- and adulation. I mean, think about it. I mean, people are cheering for you. I mean, it'd be, it's a pretty heady moment, isn't it? Now, because it was Jesus, I really don't think it was much of a concern, um, Really, it was against his nature. Jesus was, uh, he was pretty grounded. You know, so he really wasn't off in those emotional things. But I think Jesus was probably more sober than anything else because he knew what was coming. He knew that this was fleeting. And that within a week of this triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, he would be dead. He would be dead. Now, the irony in all of this is that there are probably, and this is me speculating, but I think is a reasonable uh, speculation. There's probably some of the very people cheering for Jesus on this day would be calling for his death a few days later. Now imagine that. For three years, Jesus lived among the people of Israel, bringing 
hope and healing them from the sickness and disease and performing other miracles, raising people from the dead. I mean, all kinds of things. One would think that the people loved him and were grateful for all he had done. And yet, inexplicably, they turned on him, crying out for his death. In a single moment, the people rejected Jesus. As I mentioned, in a few days from this moment, him coming into the city, great fanfare and celebration, that in a few days, the Passover was coming. And the night before the Passover began, um, Jesus was sitting down with his disciples for the Last Supper. And afterwards, he goes to the garden to pray. That's where Judas betrays him, brings the Roman soldiers and religious leaders. Jesus is arrested, and then he's taken away. And then in your, if, um, and then Mark chapter 15 accounts for what happens next. And if you have your Bible and want to follow along in Mark chapter 15, it will be on the screen. Um, or if you have a Bible app, uh, you want to follow that Mark chapter 15. I'll be reading from there. <clears throat> First one. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus. And again, he's already under arrest, so they have him under their control. They led him away and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of Jews? Pilate asked. And again, for those of you who may not be rough, Pilate was the Roman official over the area. Israel, Jerusalem, although they had the religious leaders, um, who kind of controlled the population. Rome had ultimate control. And so the religious leaders knew they couldn't get rid of Jesus on their own. They needed Rome to actually do it on their behalf. So Pilate was the Roman representative. And, Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate asked. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, Are you, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now, it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison when, with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and he handed him over to be crucified. Jesus was rejected by the very people that he loved and had served. Now, in this moment in front of this crowd, this is just my opinion, but I suspect that he looked into the crowd and he saw people he recognized. There may be a woman he's over here who he recognized was waving palm branches just a few days earlier. Or maybe a man in the back a little bit who had been sitting listening to him teach on uh, the Mount of Olives. And maybe that there are some people even recognize that he remembers touching and praying for her and they were healed in that moment. And now these same people rejected him, calling for his death. And what made it worse is that rejected him and they chose someone, a Barabbas, a convicted murderer, more than they wanted him. So here's the thing. If I'm Jesus, I can understand why the religious leaders were against me. 
I get that. That his message, his very life, actually threatened the existence of these religious leaders. Their whole view of God, really, their whole view of reality was through the lens of the Old Testament law. And they couldn't conceive of anything else. There's no other way that life made sense. And remember, they lived in what we refer to as a theocracy, which means the religious leaders controlled everything. It wasn't this, um, they were ones who determined the law. And within society, it was these leaders who had the power. They had authority. They had wealth. And if Jesus was allowed to continue, all that would disappear. And so I get why religious leaders would oppose Jesus. I can't for the life of me understand why people reject him. And it's the why of rejection that makes it hard for all of us, isn't it? Why? Why? And we wonder. Someone else gets the job promotion. Or the coach tells us that we didn't make the team. Or the college or the university that we want to attend denies our application. Or the person for whom we're developing a strong emotional attachment tells us that they don't feel the same. Rejection is painful, isn't it? Now let's unwrap that a bit more. Why is rejection so painful and sometimes even debilitating? I think one of the reasons is because rejection opens our lives to the deception of the enemy. Think of a time when you face rejected. When you were rejected for something you wanted or something where you face rejection. Now, if you're like most people, it didn't take long for your mind to settle on a thought similar to, there's something wrong with me. Or, I'm not good enough, or there's somehow I'm deficient, or I don't measure up, but there's something that's not right with me. Where did that thought come from? Now, multiple times in his letters in the New Testament, Paul acknowledges the reality of Satan. And not only just his exists, but that of his desire to destroy those who love Jesus. <clears throat> in fact, uh, in, in uh, the first Peter, the image we have um, says so that Satan is a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. It's a pretty vivid image, isn't it? In his second letter to the church in Corinth, Paul writes that this battle that's going on is often in our mind. It's not a physical battle. It's a spiritual battle, certainly, but where it occurs is quite often, more often than not, in our mind. And one of Satan's most effective tactics is to get us to believe things that aren't true about God nor are they true about ourselves. And if he gets us to believe his lies, he's got us. The lie will skew how we live, because that's the lens by which we view life. So the question for me is, why do we believe the lie? I think it's because we've seen number two in the outline, rejection reinforces feelings of inadequacy and unworthiness we already have about ourselves. So we already have self-doubt, and rejection just reinforces those feelings. We feel rejected when we're not included, when we're not accepted, when we're not approved of. All these things cause us to feel inadequate or unworthy, unwanted, we're not good enough. And then we accept that lie of Satan as a truth. And then worse, that lie defines us and it helps to shape our identity. It's how we perceive ourselves. 
And here's the thing. The fear of rejection keeps us from attempting God-ordained risks. Things that God would say, here's the, here's the path. It, it was a risk. There's, there's a step of faith that's required. But because of our fear of rejection, we don't go down that path. We stop trying. And we settle for a life so much less than what God intended for us. All because we believe a lie. Now, the sad thing is the impact of the lie doesn't end there. The fear of rejection keeps us from developing healthy relationships as well. Because rejection is so painful, naturally we try to protect ourselves from future rejection. The lie of Satan is so devious, it keeps us from doing the very thing we should be doing, engaging with others who can help us recognize the lie. We put up emotional walls and we keep people at a distance, thinking this will keep us from being rejected again. And then we even start to anticipate rejection. That reje- we think that rejection is inevitable, and so we reject others before they can reject us. The thought there is that this will spare us the pain of losing someone that we might care about and that we wanted to get to know better. However, rejection can cause us to damage our current relationships and keep future ones from developing. So the obvious question in all this for me is, how do we combat the lie that we're inadequate or unworthy and move to a posture of healing and health? I think the first step in that process is simply just to acknowledge what you're feeling. Listen to the words of King David from Psalm 31. Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish and my years by groaning. My strength fails me because of my affliction and my bones grow weak. Because of all my enemies, I am, utter, I am the utter contempt of my neighbors and the object of dread to my closest friends. Those who see me on the street flee from me. I am forgotten as though I were dead. I've become like broken pottery. Notice the words that David used to describe himself. Distressed, sorrow, grief, anguish, groaning, weak, contempt, dread, forgotten, broken. Now these are the words from one of, not one of, probably the greatest leader of all time. Not just in the Bible, I'm talking all human history. What David was able to accomplish, he has no other peers. The legacy he left for that nation and for those people was unmatched. And And on top of all that, he was chosen by God. So he was anointed, chosen by God, used by God. He had all this power, all this wealth, and all of this, And even King David struggled with feelings of rejection. So here's the thing. Valid or not, we can't help the way we feel. And self-awareness is the first step to moving beyond rejection. Acknowledging, here's what I'm feeling, and just owning it. Part of acknowledging what you're feeling is to share it with someone else. Galatians, Paul tells us in his letter to Galatians, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. What he means by that is that when sharing with other people what's happening with yourself, you allow them then to help and support you and encourage you and help you understand that what you're going through 
that there's a lie involved and you need to stay away from that. That's not the path you want to go down. And they help us confront that lie that from Satan that we have no value. <clears throat> Which is the second way we move beyond rejection. Don't believe the lie that you're... Actually, there's a, there's, it was miswritten that those of you grammarians in our midst here, um, and I can't even throw anyone else under the bus. I actually wrote this sermon outline for all the campuses this weekend. Um, don't believe the lie that you're not valuable is the way your outline should state, as opposed to don't believe the lie that you're invaluable, which actually is the opposite of what we're trying to convey. So anyway, that one's on me. I, that was, it was really odd that uh, it's, I wrote it. I made the mistake, went through our sermon team meeting. Eight of us went through it. No one caught it. People who were putting the outlines together, no one caught it. 9.30 last night, David Berry, the pastor for our East Lincoln campus, said, hey, wait a minute, doesn't value mean you're really valuable? So believe the lie that you're valuable. Aren't we saying the opposite? We're trying to Yeah, I know. So I was like, oh, rats. That was, that was me. So <laughs> don't believe the lie that you're not valuable. Some people believe that God's posture towards them is with a clenched fist. The reality is that God's posture is not a clenched fist. God's posture towards us is with a nail-scarred hand, extended to us with love and mercy. 1 John 3 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. Now, some might say, yeah, but if God loved me, how could he allow me to experience so much pain and rejection in my life? Honestly, I don't know. I don't have that answer. I do know, though, however, God identifies with your pain. He hurts when you hurt. God knows what you're going through and identifies that. God loves you more than you can ever fully grasp. You are incredibly valuable to God, and he would never reject you. So don't believe the lie that you're not valuable. Number three, refuse to let rejection define you. As much as rejection hurts, it won't last forever. Rejection is circumstantial. It's not you. Now, instead of listening to Satan's voice of rejection, listen to how God sees you. In Ephesians 2, Paul says this, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This idea of handiwork conveys this idea, uh, um, the notion that we're uniquely crafted. Special. Special order. Jeremiah 29 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. This is how God sees you. This is what God thinks about you. Don't let the pain of rejection settle in and become the narrative for your life. Now, the best way to do that is to remember that, remember the one opinion that matters most. Um, some of you know uh, our daughter, who lives in Greensboro, had uh, our first grandson actually 10 days ago. I actually have a picture. Look how open. See, he's three days old here. Um, 
just so tiny, just a, just a, David Richard, um, so David Richard Black is their last name. Um, what does Dave need to do in order for me to love him more than I already do? What does he need to do differently? Absolutely nothing. I can't love him more than I already do. I just, I mean, even when he cries, I mean, he makes a mess, fills his diaper, throws up, spits up, all those things that are very human, but they're not nice. They're, they're problems. They're just, it, when he does that, do I love him any less? No. Why? Why is that? Honestly, because he's a part of me. He's a part of me. He's my grandson, and there's nothing he can do that would cause me to love him any more than I already do. And there's nothing he can do that will cause me to love him any less than I already do. The same is true for the way God sees you and me. Yes, we make mistakes. We make messes. We're not perfect. And still he looks at us and he says, you are a part of me. Jeremiah 31 says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. See, we need to remember that Jesus knew rejection was coming. He knew. I mean, he told his disciples before he even got to Jerusalem, where I'm going there and this is what's going to happen. He told them what was going to happen. And yet he never wavered from the path before him. In fact, Luke records it this way. He says, as the time approached for him to be, t- for him to be taken up to heaven, for, him to, for his death, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. The old King James Version reads that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. There was no wavering. There was no hesitancy. The words there are just unmistakable of his intent. Why would Jesus willingly subject himself to rejection and to death on a cross? The only thing, the only reason I can make come up with, and why I think the Bible tells us time and time again, is because you and me were centerpiece in a story of relentless love. God loves us. Jesus fully gave himself for you, no strings attached. And that changes everything. Everything changes because of that. Now, earlier I asked you if you could identify with Jesus' pain of rejection. You need to know that Jesus can identify with you. He knows the pain you're feeling, the pain you're going through.